Uh, let's ask God to help us now. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, you say in your word that you give good things to those who ask you. And so we pray now for good. We pray that we would receive this word as the word of the living God and it would do its work in our hearts. It would help us trust Jesus for salvation and through its teaching, rebuke, correction and training, we would be equipped to live as Jesus' followers. And help me uh, in my weakness to speak your word truthfully and clearly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as uh, Helen has uh, said, uh, Chris is away for two weeks. Uh, when he comes back, he's actually going to be starting a series on Elijah. Uh, but that left a two-week gap, as it were, between finishing 1 Thessalonians and starting Elijah. And we thought in this two weeks it would be helpful to look at two things that are in fact kind of always relevant, prayer and how Christians deal with wealth and material needs from Matthew 6. So tonight we're actually going to be thinking about prayer. And you may not have realised this in our secular society, but it's not just Christians who pray, lots of people pray. So Buddhists pray, Hindus pray, Muslims pray, Jews pray, and yes, uh, it has been said that even that in foxholes, even atheists pray, uh, but I doubt many of us have any personal experience of that. But prayer's not just a Christian thing. Uh, it's still near universal, as it was in the first century, when our Lord first taught his disciples how to pray as his disciples, those who came to God as Jesus revealed himself, him to be. And, of course, as a near universal thing, prayer, like driving, provides lots of opportunities for people to get it wrong. So Jesus starts his teaching on prayer by contrasting the way the disciples are to pray with wrong practices of prayer in the world around them, where people can, verses 5 to 6 of Matthew, and it will help you to have your Bible open, where people can pray for the wrong reason, where they can pray to the wrong God, ignorant of the true God, verses 7 and 8, where verses 9 to 13 they can pray for wrong things. And then in verses 14 to 15 where they can pray with the wrong heart, the wrong attitude of people who are not in relationship with the true and living God by his grace. Now as you uh, heard, <coughs> this teaching is part of a larger section where Jesus continues to teach his followers what the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, the righteousness of citizens of the kingdom he preaches, looks like. Uh, in this section, uh, the focus is on what we might call, this section of Matthew, Matthew 6, or what we might call religious duties, you know, giving to the poor, prayer and fasting. Now, again, in our society, these may not play a big role as formal practices, but Jesus' society was a religious society like many Muslim or Buddhist countries today. And a person's participation in those acts was an important part of establishing their reputation in the community as righteous, as someone who, in this case, the Jewish case, conformed their life to God's covenant with his people. 
I'm going to focus on prayer tonight because it does play such a big part of our day-to-day Christian lives. But two observations from verses 1 to 4. Uh, The first observation is this. The big point of this section is clear. Jesus states it at the beginning before illustrating it through the practices of giving to the poor prayer and fasting. Beware of practising your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. What we do, the practice of our religious duties like church attendance or serving at rosters or attending meetings like prayer meetings, must be done, says our Lord, for God our Father, not motivated by a desire to impress people done to win their approval. And secondly, for we should just observe this, and I hope you observed it from the reading, for Jesus and his contemporaries, giving to the poor was an aspect of your duty to God. A piety without generosity to the poor was unimaginable. Now, I think in many ways we have lost that today. Today, the appeal to give to the poor is made exclusively on what you might call the horizontal plane, their rights or their needs, tugging at our heartstrings. It's not, the appeal's not made on the vertical plane. That is what our God requires. But giving to the poor is what God requires. The poor don't have to demonstrate their worthiness or the extremity of their need. If they are poor, we should know that God expects us to give to them as part of our love for him. And that's important because, you know, sometimes we make judgments about the poor. You know, they're not needy enough or they're not worthy enough. And we can use that to harden our hearts to them and minimise our giving. But you cannot so easily avoid or water down what God expects And he commands us to give to the poor, to respect him by respecting those made in his image. Our motivation to give is to please him, not to impress others. In fact, Jesus says it must be about pleasing him alone. Verse 3, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, not letting your right left hand know what your right hand is doing is not talking about being ignorant of your own actions, thoughtless or unplanned in your giving. It's about not publicising, not advertising your giving in contrast to the hypocrites who draw everyone's attention to what they're doing. So you can and should be thoughtful and intentional about your giving. Make the plan. But Jesus says you've got to keep it between yourself and God. But let's move on to think about the main thing tonight, which is prayer, our prayers. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Just as you can give with the wrong motive, so you can pray with the wrong motive. 
Most praying in the first century, like reading, was out loud. Now, whether or not people did pray on street corners or not, Jesus makes his point. The motive in their praying was to impress other people, to improve their position in life by enhancing their reputation in a religious community. They are hypocrites because they are, knowing or unknowing, play-acting. They're pretending to speak to God, while all the while the real audience is people. Jesus' followers, by contrast, must go into their room and shut the door, must pray in such a way that it's clear that the only audience of our prayers is God, that the only reason to pray is to be heard by God. Now, the room Jesus speaks of was probably a storeroom, the only lockable room in most Palestinian houses, where the disciple could be alone, unseen with God. Here we pray to our Father, who is in secret. (coughs) So true prayer is always an act of faith, speaking to the God who is in secret, the unseen God, yet who is the God who is in all places and in the hidden places. But Jesus assures his followers that their father hears their prayer, sees what happens in the secret place. Praying when no one else knows will not go unnoticed by the living God. He will reward us, hear and answer our prayers. Jesus' followers pray to be heard by God. And we look to the reward of our praying from God alone. All the value of our praying, its only motivation is being heard by God. Now, that doesn't rule out public prayer. Jesus prayed in public as well as in private. In Acts, we see the apostles and other believers often gathering for prayer. But our motive in prayer is to be heard by the living God. We are always praying only to him, not to impress or inform others of our needs or piety. You see, the prayer of hypocrites is basically an atheistic prayer, praying where it really doesn't matter if God is real or not. You see, their thoughts and desires are all focused on people and on the benefits they can get from people. Now, in a community like ours, that remains a danger. So this is a reminder that if we want to be safe in praying in public, We must be diligent in praying in private. Our habit should be bringing our needs and requests to our Father in secret so that when we do pray in public, we know our hearts have been trained and disciplined to look to him alone, that our prayers flow from a conviction that he is living and active and that he hears and answers prayers that honour him by conforming to the truth he has revealed about himself. Now, there are other ways of being atheists in prayer. People who advocate advocate prayer because of its effect on you. You know, you pray because of its calming effect or that sense of inner peace it brings. Or those who liken prayer to meditation where it's Benefit is emptying your mind of the stresses of the day. Now, those are basically atheistic attitudes to prayer. Prayer done where God's involvement is irrelevant. And people who pray for those reasons have have their reward, that calming or peace. 
And that's all. And that's nothing compared to being heard by God. And at least in my experience, and you can test this against your out of experience, people who say those things are actually out of touch with the reality of the experience of praying. Sometimes praying is just exhausting, something that you have to work at that takes energy. You come in desperate and needy with a lot on your mind trying to focus and you leave desperate and needy. But knowing that you have been heard by your heavenly Father and trusting him to answer. Well, that's my experience. Your experience might be different. Jesus' followers pray to be heard by God our Father. And that's why the prayer Jesus teaches is both simple, direct and full of requests. You see, the living God doesn't need flattery or information or direction. But some people pray wrongly because they are ignorant of the true and living God and are praying to false gods, gods who are dead, gods of their imagination who neither see nor hear nor act in the world. So just as the prayers of Jesus' people are to differ from the hypocrites, so they are to differ from those of Gentile idolaters. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. The pagans thought that they needed to get their God's attention. And uh, you'll soon be looking with Chris at the antics of the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel uh, uh, in 1 Kings 18 when they're doing battle with Elijah. They really, they work themselves up into a frenzy to get their God's attention. And because they thought they had to get their God's attention, they'd string together the names of God. They'd have long prayers full of flattery of the gods because, well, they couldn't be sure that God would be interested. They were trying to impress by the volume of their devotion. And they thought they needed to inform their gods of the circumstances and of what they wanted the gods specifically to do, and so they'd lay it out in detail. But Jesus' followers pray to the living and true God. He knows what we need before we ask him. Calling God Father, as Jesus teaches his followers to do, should not make us forgetful of our God's awesome reality. You heard something of God's greatness in Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. Our God knows us through and through because as this psalm reminds us, (coughs) he made us. He knit us together in our mother's womb and he does know us before a word is on our tongue. Before we have formulated our request, he knows it. Our Father is almighty and all-knowing. He is of infinite wisdom, power and holiness. He is present everywhere and over all. And he knows 
what we need. He knows what's best for us. And as a good father will give it to us, even when that is not what we are asking for. See, our prayers are not about informing God of our circumstances as if he didn't know. And they're not about directing God about what he should do for us. Praying like that, in both those ways, dishonour the living God. Our prayers, as we'll see, are about asking God for help. So when you pray, especially if you're praying in public, don't confuse informing people of what is going on with praying to the almighty God. If people need to be informed, then inform them. You know, say I'm, you know, I'm going to pray for Auntie X, who's sick at the moment. But don't confuse that with praying. Inform the people and then ask God, who knows perfectly well what the problem with Auntie X is, ask God for the help that's needed. Our prayers are about asking God, bringing our need to him, trusting him to know best how to answer. Now, some will say, if he knows already, well, why are we asking him? Why pray at all? We are his creatures and his children. And God wills that we receive and know his goodness through prayer, through asking him, that we should come to him for what he promises to receive it from his hand, that we treat him as he is an a person, not an almighty vending machine. You see, prayer is the expression of a relationship, a relationship of humble dependence on our Father. It's not about getting what you want out of the universe, just another way of you being in charge, the centre of your world. Now, parents often know what their children need before they ask, but they still want to be asked. But they do know, don't they? I mean, few parents, when the child comes asking for food, are taken by surprise, are they? They say, well, who would have thought you want something to eat? I've got to go to the shops. Very few parents are like that. God's much greater than our parents. But expecting and making the children ask actually strengthens the relationship. The child grows in knowledge of his or her parents' reliability and trustworthiness. And asking reinforces the parameters of the relationship, the authority as well as the responsibility of the parent. In this case, a responsibility to ensure a healthy diet and teach self-control. And asking often increases the appreciation of what is received, increases thankfulness and helps those who receive it to value it. God wills his children ask him for what he knows they need. And he wills they ask in ways that show they know he is the almighty, all-knowing God who cares for his people. They don't have to pile on the words to get his attention, for Jesus says the living God is known as and can be called upon by his followers as our Father. Pray then, he says, like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God is committed to Jesus' disciples. 
those who've responded to Jesus' summons to repent and believe that God's reign has come with him, God's king. And so, believer, do you let yourself reflect on the wonder of that privilege, the wonder of calling the living, almighty, holy and just God our Father? Now, that's an address that speaks of both affection and authority. Authority, because our God is the source and sustainer of our life, the one whose word, like first century fathers, rules his household. But he is not a distant tyrant. We can approach our God with confidence, knowing we can rely on his interest in us and his affection towards us for Jesus' sake. Now, it's hard to find a comparison to bring home the greatness of this privilege that each one of us, no matter how humble and unimportant we are, that each one of us who trusts Jesus enjoys. I mean, God's greatness, well, we're like a speck of dust to his Mount Everest. And even that's underestimating the difference. Oh, think of the the comparison of his power to ours. We're like a, a, a spark from a fire. Here for a moment and gone. He's the sun, enduring in power. And how can we compare his holiness to our sinfulness? There is no comparison. Like light and dark, one excludes the other. When Isaiah was brought into the presence of the holy God, saw the train of his robe filling the temple, he said, Woe is me, for I am lost. And yet you and I, trusting the Lord Jesus, believing he's died for our sins and risen again, we can call this great, almighty, true, living, holy God our Father. Now, that's a great privilege. And it's a reminder also that this is a prayer only for believers, only for those cleansed from sin by Jesus' blood, adopted as God's children through faith in Jesus. It's only for believers and it is for all believers, each and every one. See, this is a communal prayer, isn't it? Our Father, our daily bread, our debts lead us. This is not a prayer preoccupied with self but prayed conscious that we are each of us part of a family of believers and bringing the needs of our brothers and sisters to God along with our own. And think about the prayer as a whole. It's direct, it's simple, it's all requests. Six carefully structured, the first three looking for God to fulfil his purposes in the world, the next three bringing before our God what we need to keep living as his children, as Jesus' followers in this world. Oh, it's comprehensive. All our longings and all our needs can find a place in this prayer. Now, Jesus doesn't teach here all there is about prayer. There's no confession, no thanks here. But it is the core, this prayer is the core of our practice of prayer that embodies and expresses what Jesus has actually just taught. Prayer is looking to the living God for what we need. Prayer that only makes sense where God is, where God hears, and where God is active in the world to save and keep his people. 
Now, these requests tell us that this is a prayer for the poor in spirit. That's where Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount, remember. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. This is a prayer for the poor in spirit, for the desperate and dependent, those who know that the world is not as it should be, and only God can set it right, not them, only God, and those who know they depend on him for life, for relationship, and for living as a disciple of Jesus, and depend on him for coming to the realisation of the hope Jesus has given them. This prayer is both a model and a prayer that can be prayed in its own right, alone and together, for it expresses all that Jesus' people long for and need as we wait now the revealing of the Son in glory. Now, we're about to look at each of the phrases uh, in this prayer. And, of course, as you know, the danger is always that I'm going to say too much. Let me say that danger is real. For this is a prayer I have prayed every day now for 40 years. And the Lord here in these words gave me a way back to relating to our Heavenly Father after a really dry patch. When I couldn't think of my own words to say because I was just so, so in a sense distant. It was these words that in a sense through which God revived that relationship I had with him. And then, of course, it became the structure of my praying and has been ever since. So let's look at this phrase. Oops. Hallowed be your name. Uh, first phrase and the one we usually stumble on right at the start because who knows what hallow means, right? <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you, right? Uh, the hallow is when we ask God hallow, hallow means sanctify. So what we're doing here is asking God to sanctify his name. That is to cause people to treat his revelation of himself as holy, distinct, separate. Now, what does that look like God causing people to treat his revelation of himself as holy well Ezekiel shows us in Ezekiel 36 ESV it says and God speaking I will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them and the nations will know that I am the Lord declares the Lord God when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Now that phrase translated in the ESV as vindicate the holiness is actually in the Greek version of the Old Testament a translation of exactly the same verb used in the Lord's Prayer. God is saying, I will sanctify my holy name. I will hallow my holy name by bringing everyone to know that I'm the Lord. See, asking God that his name be sanctified is asking God to act to show his reality in the world, that he is the God he has revealed himself to be, the only God. And in Ezekiel 36, God promises to do that by saving his people and making them a holy people who will do his will from, from the heart through the new life he will give them by his spirit. Oh, and in Ezekiel 38 to 39, God says he will show the holiness of his name through defeating the proud, those who would oppress his people. 
Actually, when you pray that first phrase, that's what you are asking God to do in the world, to save and to judge so that people will know the truth about him. But, of course, we're not just asking for the world. When we pray this prayer, we're actually asking the Lord to start in every phrase with us. We're asking the Lord to sanctify his name in our hearts, to move us to believe all that he says of himself, to rely on his promises, to tremble at his warnings as the promises and warnings of the living and true God. And we're asking him to move us to cause us to live as his holy people. And notice this is the first request, the first desire of Jesus' followers, the honour, the glory of our Father, that all would know the truth about him. And we want God to bring them to know that. Your kingdom come. Uh, We long now, don't we, for the full revelation of the kingdom, the reign of God being preached by Jesus. That kingdom... Jesus teaches in his parables is growing and spreading now in the world and will one day be revealed in glory with the revealing of the glory of Jesus at his return. So this is a prayer that Jesus would reign now through his word, but especially that our Father would bring the day when the Lord Jesus returns and every knee bows to him. You see, to be a disciple is, yes, to be now living under Jesus' word, but it's also to be always longing for and looking for the future fulfilment of all that God has promised, to be longing for the establishment of justice and righteousness in the world. To be a disciple is to never to be content with the way the world is now, to never be content until Jesus' reign is acknowledged by all. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's a sense in which God's will is always done, but there's also a sense that at the moment his will, his righteous and holy law, is ignored and rejected and despised. Jesus' disciples confess that God's will is best for all, and we want it perfectly obeyed as it is in heaven. We want that time to come. We want that time when all disobedience and rebellion will be no more. And we want the granting of this prayer to start with us, don't we? You see, when you are praying this, you are saying, like Jesus in the garden, not my will, but yours be done in my life. See, this is a prayer for grace. To each day, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus, that God would so work in you and your fellow believers that we would willingly do those things we know he commands and which we don't want to. We're praying your will be done, not my will. And we need to pray that, don't we? Because loving that difficult person at work is just hard. Staying committed to that difficult spouse when with every, you know, every sinew, every cell in your being, you want to be free from the pain. Curtailing your own freedoms to be there for your needy friends. Sometimes doing what God, what we know God wants us to do is hard. 
And we need to pray. Your will be done. Give us today our daily bread. Jesus' first hearers were mainly day labourers. That is, they got paid that day (laughs) the money that they needed to buy the food for the next day. Jesus is teaching them that they can look to their father for what they need to sustain their lives and can turn confidently to him. That the almighty God who cares for them, that the one who rules the universe, can actually be bothered with what they and we need each day. See, praying this prayer, we are acknowledging our dependence on our Father for what we need, for our recurring needs. Our Father's not upset when we come and ask him again the next day for that day's bread. And we can have confidence in him for all our needs in an uncertain world, whether that's for work or a place to live. He teaches us to pray for our daily needs. Our needs, of course, not our greeds. And for us who have so much, it's a reminder, this phrase, that all we have is actually from him. And this is a place to pray that we would use what he's entrusted to us well. And that through his generosity to us, we might be the means of providing for others. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. This is a reminder again that this is the prayer of those who are poor in spirit. We're not praying this prayer because we're good or we deserve to belong to God's family. Debt's a metaphor for sin. And here's an opportunity to both confess our sin and remember that we are in God's family because of his mercy to the undeserving. We need God to keep us in relationship with himself by continuing always to us his grace. And debt's also a metaphor for sin that reminds us that there's a cost to forgiving. A forgiven debt is money for gone, money that you will never see again. A forgiven sin means that we farewell forever the right to vindication and to exact punishment. And even in the priest's prayer, we're reminded that to rely on grace and mercy is to practice relationships of grace and mercy. It can't be grace for us, but justice for them. Forgiveness for us, but they have to pay the price of their wronging us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Uh, Testing. (coughs) This is an admission of our frailty. Those who are poor in spirit have no false confidence in their own strength. They know their weakness and their need to be protected and preserved by their Father on their journey through life to our heavenly goal. And every day we are taught to turn to our Father to keep us, to be the God of Psalm 103 to us, who has compassion on his frail children. This is a prayer, in a sense, that asks for a positive through a negative, that the Lord would keep leading us in the path of obedience, that with testing he would show us the way of escape he promises us. And Jesus' followers are conscious that we're in a spiritual battle with the evil one and that he is too strong for us on our own. Now, when you are facing what seems overwhelming, when it just seems too hard. 
whether it's that struggle with sexual temptation or with envy or with anger, Jesus teaches us here to turn to our Heavenly Father. He actually assures us that he won't rebuke us for our weakness, for our lack of internal resources. He's telling us that we can bring our need and rely on our Father to keep and protect us. And at the end of the prayer, Jesus emphasises what he has said about forgiveness in verse 12. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Jesus is emphasising again that this is only a prayer for the poor in spirit, those who are in the family of God by his gracious mercy. To be in God's family is to be forgiven and forgiving. And it is to grow to be like our Father, to show the family characteristics, family desires, the family attitude. Our Father loves his enemies and he does good to them. We confess that when we say, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Our Father welcomes the spiritually bankrupt and forgives. So you cannot be in his family unless you embrace his way of relating, a way of relating that expresses who he is, merciful and gracious. To not forgive is to repudiate our Father. It's to despise his character. It's to say that your justice, your honour matters more than his. He can forgive, but you can't. Now, people sometimes look at these verses and debate precedence and conditionality. Can we only be forgiven if we have first forgiven? Oh, and and have I remembered all the sins of others against me that I should forgive? Now, when you start asking those questions, you're on a pathway to almost eternal anxiety, right? This is not about earning forgiveness by forgiving, as Matthew 18 makes clear. Man in that parable who didn't forgive had been forgiven first. This is about sharing the family attitude and values, which you must if you are going to pray our Father. And if you share that attitude, you will forgive the repentant. Now, it may be you know you are struggling with forgiveness, with forgiving someone who is unrepentant. Let me say the issue then is not forgiveness because it's impossible to forgive the unrepentant. What you should pray instead for is their repentance. Pray for your enemies, Matthew 5. And yes, you have to repent of bitterness and a desire for revenge if that's there in your heart. And if you are doing that, if you are being like your father in loving your enemies, You'll show the family likeness by forgiving if they repent and you'll show grace to your enemy. So pray the Lord's Prayer. Be disciples of Jesus in your praying. You should use this prayer. Believer in Jesus, this is your prayer given to you by your Lord. So bring your desires and needs to your Father as Jesus has taught you with these words or using the prayer as a model for your own praying. Let this prayer discipline your heart.
before God in that secret place. Let it orient you to his glory and the fulfilment of his purposes in his son every day. And that's life giving. You know, to be given this gift and neglected, well, that'd be like being given the PM's private number and then spending your time filling in contact forms at your local member's website. Don't be too proud or too lazy to use this prayer. If you're prayerless, if you're dry, if you feel distanced by the consciousness of your sin, use this prayer, its words, as the way back to relating to your heavenly Father, to knowing his love, to holding your heart before him. Honour God by conforming your public praying to this directness and simplicity an expression of the truth about our God. And rejoice, all of us, every one of us who's a believer in Jesus, all of us should rejoice that in believing in Jesus, adopted as God's child through faith in him, we are actually heard, heard by our heavenly Father, the eternal God, who through his Son calls us to come to him and say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let's pray. Our gracious heavenly Father, uh, when we stop to think about it, we are stunned that you, the almighty God, uh, should teach us to pray to you through your Son and should open up the way to you through your Son, through his death. Uh, we pray that we would not be lazy or proud and ungrateful and not pray to you. Please work in our heart our gratitude to you, trust in you, a childlike dependence on you so that we come. We come in the private place and bring the needs and longings of our heart to you as your grateful children. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.